Joshua 2, 1 through 15. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, And there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built onto the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. This is the word of the Lord. So depending on where you are in the United States, you might from time to time get into a conversation with someone uh, where they brag to you about their ancestors. They might claim to be a direct descendant of some famous historical figure. So I grew up in West Texas. In West Texas, you know, sometimes you might come into a conversation with someone who says they're a descendant of Sam Houston or Davy Crockett or most likely Tom Landry. That's the most likely option that they want to be descended from the Cowboys head coach. Um, When Marianne and I lived in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin was all the buzz. You know, that's his hometown. And every now and then you might come across someone that says, yeah, I'm a a descendant of Benjamin Franklin. And also, you know, it's a well-known fact that everyone in the American South is either a direct descendant of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. Every one of them. Uh, And they'll tell you that if you go visit the South today. You know, we all sort of want to put our best foot forward when it comes to our lineage, when it comes to our people, as they say in the South, when it comes to where we're from and our story, we all want to sometimes perhaps take pride in our own family of origin, our own history, the story that preceded our stories. And so oftentimes it makes sense that people, and we might even do those things, will lead with what we're proud of in our own family. You would think that that would be normal, and that is pretty normal, but that's not actually what we see in the New Testament when Jesus is introduced. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, doesn't introduce Jesus by telling us about all of his famous ancestors. He introduces Jesus, rather, by telling us, in part, 
that Jesus' ancestor in this instance was, well, a prostitute. She was a hooker. Now, that seems radical and scandalous and abrupt and strange, and that's exactly the point. That's what we're looking at this Christmas season together. We're looking at the mothers of Jesus, the four women who are named in the introduction to Jesus of Nazareth in Matthew chapter 1 in what's called Jesus' genealogy. Last week we saw that Tamar is the first woman that is named, and we looked at her story together last week, and we saw that In part, Matthew is including these particular women and Tamar specifically because he wants people to understand that this newborn son of David, Jesus, is all about giving grace to the scandalous and downtrodden and broken. And that's what I want us to see this Advent season. That Christmas is about God coming in the person of Jesus to dwell with the people who are shrouded and surrounded by darkness. And so this week, we continue the same theme in the story of the second mother of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, we read about Rahab. Rahab is the second woman mentioned, and we should be even more shocked by her inclusion in Jesus' own family of origin. So what we want to do this morning is look at her story for a couple of minutes and see what it reveals to us about the message of Christmas and about the reason why Jesus came. And so let me break this story down in three parts, okay? First, we're going to see Rahab's profession before faith. Second, Rahab's confession of faith. And third, her expression of faith. I thought that was like an incredible outline that the Holy Spirit like directly inputted into my mind. It rhymes. I mean, it's just incredible. I even told Marianne this week, I just had an epiphany about my outline for the week. So please write that down for posterity's sake. Okay. Um, Rahab's profession before faith, her confession of faith, her expression of faith. Okay. So first, let's look at Rahab's profession. What did she do? Before faith. And to do that, we need to jump into the background of the story. So we're jumping in here into the middle of the Old Testament narrative in Joshua, where God's people, Israel, are finally about to enter the land of promise. And this is the land that was promised to Abraham by God hundreds of years earlier. And the family of Abraham at this point had been in the land of Egypt for 400 years. Abraham's family under Jacob and Joseph went there. And when they went to Egypt, they were about 70 people strong. And over the next couple of centuries, they grew to 2 million people. This freaked the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, out. And so he began to oppress and enslave God's people. He had them building all the public works projects in Egypt, and he was treating them terribly. So God sent his servant Moses the most famous part of the Old Testament, most likely, to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. So Moses has come. It's been 40 years since the Exodus, and the people of God are on the doorstep of the promised land. It took 40 years because the Israelites, on their way out of Egypt, rebelled against God. They grumbled against God. And so God did not allow any of that generation, including Moses, to enter into the land. And so this is the next generation And Moses has passed the baton of leadership on to Joshua, and they're right on the precipice of entering into Canaan, the promised land. And so as they're getting ready to enter, what we see here is Joshua sending two spies 
Two of the elite of the Israelite army. I mean, this is like the Jewish SEAL Team 6, right? And they are going into the first city that needs to be occupied by the Israelites as they enter into the promised land, and that is the city of Jericho. And so that's where our story picks up. These first two spies enter on a reconnaissance mission in Joshua chapter 2. And if we pick up in verse 1, we'll see that they enter in secretly, and the first place they go is to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Now, that is intended to be a bit baffling. I mean, why would they go there? You know, some translations try to sort of soften this, and they'll say that they went to an inn. You know, this isn't a bed and breakfast like in Bernie. This is a brothel. Okay, this is a whorehouse. Rahab lives among other people who plied that trade, and that's the first place that the spies go. Now, the author is very careful to make it clear that nothing unbecoming or unseemly takes place. The spies do not do anything that would have jeopardized their integrity or their mission, but they do go here first, which begs the question, why? I think one commentator really gets it. He says, Rahab's house was likely a way station or a tavern or a combination of these. It would have been a logical place for spies to frequent as a public gathering place and a potential source of information. So they're looking for intel. So the spies go and they talk to one of the prostitutes in this place. Rahab is her name. And... Their cover, in verse 2, is blown while they're there. And Rahab helps the two men, as we read, hide from the Jericho Secret Service, I suppose, the Jericho police. And uh, Rahab allows the men to escape freely by, uh, when the king of Jericho sends these men to capture them. So, here's the idea. This scandal-ridden Canaanite woman who is a complete foreigner to the people of Israel and to the promises of God helps these two spies escape. And again, I want you to keep the big picture of our purposes during this series in mind here. Why would Matthew, of all the options he could have selected, chosen Rahab, the prostitute, to introduce Jesus I mean, this is for sure a great story. It's really a fun story in the Old Testament. But why would Matthew want to mention this story and this woman and all that's inevitably, inevitably going to be associated with her if he's trying to give Jesus credibility? If he wants people to see Jesus as a king with dignity and honor and authority, what is Matthew doing? This is embarrassing, we might even think. This is shocking. At the very least, it's unexpected. I mean, Tamar, last week, Tamar and Judah, that was messy. (laughs) But you could at least say that was a one-time thing that Tamar and Judah did. But for Rahab, I mean, this is her profession. She is a prostitute. That's what she does. So what's going on? Now, surely Rahab has been a victim of terrible circumstances that have led her to this place. She's likely made poor choices on her own part. She's also likely had abuses perpetrated upon her, but her status is her status. And by the way, almost every time after this where she's mentioned in the Bible, that label, the prostitute, is attached after her name. So what is happening here? Here's what's happening, and here's what I want you to get. What we are doing here is getting to the very heart of who God is and the very heart of why Jesus came. Um, One New Testament commentator says this, 
already here in Matthew 1 in the genealogy, Jesus is presented as the one who will ignore human labels of legitimacy and illegitimacy to offer his gospel of salvation to all, including the most despised and outcast of society. Listen, Matthew wants you to understand something of Jesus's mission and something of Jesus's character by including Rahab. Here's what he wants you to get. Jesus came to dwell with, to help, to befriend those who are scandal-ridden. Those who are broken. Those who are desperate. Those who are needy. Those who have nothing to credit themselves for morally. And if you look at Jesus' life in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll see all kinds of stories where that's brought to light. In Luke 7, for example, Jesus interacts with another woman of ill repute. He's in the house of a Pharisee whose name is Simon, and this woman comes and begins to wash his feet with her hair. You might remember that story. In the house of the Pharisee, and all the religious people around, the religious establishment is just scandalized by this. And they're asking themselves, what is going on? This guy's a rabbi. This guy's saying grandiose things about himself. How can he allow something this, you know, right on the border of what's acceptable take place? And Jesus says to them in Luke 7, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Listen, Matthew is telling us here at the very beginning of the gospel story, at the very beginning of the Christmas story, by including Rahab, that Jesus came for and Jesus cares for the sinful, the downtrodden, the addict, the messed up. Here is the point of Christmas. Our mess is the context for God to come and go to work in mending and healing our shattered souls. Owning our mess and being honest about it is being honest about the areas where we need God to come and gloriously bring redemption in our lives is a part of understanding in a very significant and real way what Christmas is. You know, the story is asking us to, to say to ourselves, where is our mess? Where are you scandal-ridden? Where do you feel the weight and depth of your own sinful brokenness because you live in a fallen world and are a fallen person? Perhaps that's just the place this Christmas where Jesus wants to come and begin to work his gracious mending and healing power in your life. I think I've used this quote before from Brendan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, but I think it makes the point better than most quotes I've read, and it's extended. I've got it up there. Yes, I'm going to read all that, so just buckle up. Um, Here's what Brendan Manning writes. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, see Revelation 7, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. But how, we ask, 
Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. My friends, if that is not good news to you, then you do not understand the gospel of grace. And that is why Rahab is in Jesus' genealogy. That's why Matthew hearkens back to her story. We see her profession before faith. Back to the story. Rahab deceives the authorities and hides the two spies. And the big question of the story is, why does she do this? And so secondly, we see her confession of faith. Rahab is not an Israelite. She does not know these men. She owes these men nothing. But the next part of the narrative makes her reasoning clear. She believes what she has heard about Israel's God. She believes what she has heard about Israel's God. Look at what she says to the men beginning there in verse 9. I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land. The fear of you has fallen upon upon us. Verse 10. Um, We've heard what God has done. He dried up the water of the Red Sea. You came out of Egypt. You defeated the kings of the Amorites. And as soon as we heard it, verse 11, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God. In the heavens above... And on the earth beneath. Now that's a remarkable and beautiful confession of faith from this Canaanite harlot. And I want you to see real quick two things that are significant about her confession. First, notice there that she affirms God's uniqueness. She calls God by his name. The Lord, anytime in the Old Testament where you see Lord in all caps, that's God's name, Yahweh. And uh, Rahab would have been a polytheist up to this point. She came from a Canaanite society that worshipped different kinds of gods. They believed each city or each region had their own sort of tribal god and that they were kind of constantly fighting and jockeying for power. But Rahab here says, no, your God is the only real God. She affirms his uniqueness because she's heard what God has done for his people in rescuing them. And then secondly, she affirms God's sovereignty. She very clearly here says God can do what he wants. He miraculously brought Egypt or brought Israel out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He defeated more powerful nations already. She says there at the end of verse 11, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now that little phrase is used a few other times in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, it's used with reference to the all-powerful God, to the sovereignty of God. So Rahab here is able to say, the reason I want to rescue you, the reason I want to help you spies escape is because I can see that your God alone is God. I can see because of what I've heard that your God is all powerful. I can see that your God demands the allegiance and worship of all people. And so I'm going to show you that I see him for who he is in helping you. She confesses. This is a transformational moment for her. And I hope you can appreciate to some degree how remarkable this confession is. Um, This is a stranger This is an outsider to the true God and to his people and to their story. But what she has heard, she believes. She sees the truth of who God is through his actions in the world and she believes them. She takes him at his word. 
So Rahab's not just doing this to save her own skin and the skin of her family. She's doing this for a theological reason, fundamentally. She sees that God is who he says he is. By the way, real quick, I think that says something very interesting about the Christian faith. Among other things, one thing I believe makes Christianity unique is that the only thing that it requires initially of its adherents is that they see God for who he claims to be and believe what he has done. You don't have to climb the moral ladder to get accepted into God's family. You don't have to um, prove yourself in any way to get into God's family. You simply have to acknowledge, to confess that the real God is who he says he is and that he has done mighty things in saving his people. That is the only, the only way to enter in. And we see it even here in Rahab. You might say we see Rahab understanding that God is gracious in her confession. But that's not all we see in Rahab. We see not only that she confesses her faith with her mouth, but she also expresses that faith. So let's look at that real quick thirdly. What does she do? Well, she says, I believe these things about God, right? She gives this really theologically accurate confession about God and his work in the world, but then she risks her life to save these men. That is, she puts her money where her mouth is. She proves that what she says is something she really believes through her action. At great potential cost to herself and to her family, she comes up with this plan for their escape. They go down a rope through the window because her apartment was built into the wall of the city in the brothel. And further, she saves her whole family from the coming destruction of Jericho at the hands of the Israelite army. So you see there, she makes a covenant with the spies. She says, if I let you go, you need to spare my family. Basically, what Rahab says is this. Listen, guys, I believe that your God is who he says he is and that he's done mighty things for you. And I'm going to demonstrate that by putting myself on the line to get you out of here. And so when you guys come back, I want you to credit my faithfulness here. Credit my faith here. To me, remember what I've done and rescue me and my family. Save us from the coming destruction when you come with weapons and armor, right? And, and the men agree. They tell her to put the scarlet cord in the window. She lets them down by that in the window. And then that serves as a sign at the end of the chapter that they should spare her when they come. You know, this is a mini Passover event, really, for Rahab. If you're familiar with the Passover in Exodus, when the the angel of the Lord in the 10th plague comes and says, I'm going to put to death all the firstborn children of Egypt as an act of judgment against Pharaoh for refusing to let my people go. Unless you slaughter a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over your door, then I will pass over you. My judgment will pass you by. That's exactly what happens to Rahab here. The scarlet cord serves as a symbol of her faith. It serves as a testimony to what she says to, she believes, and then to what she actually does as a result of her belief. So two things I want you to see about this in particular, and then we're done, okay? First, you've got to get here that Rahab puts action behind her confession. She says she believes in the real God and trusts him at his word, and then she proves it by her actions here, Right? And that's why Rahab, by the way, is mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once in Hebrews chapter 11, once in James chapter 2, as an example of faith. By the way, Hebrews 11, that's like the hall of fame of faithful people. 
And the author has a lot of people to choose from. And Rahab, Rahab, with her profession, makes the list. What's, what's going on there? What's going on is this. Those, those New Testament authors are saying, if you want to know what faith is like, look at Rahab. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus in a real way, look at Rahab. Real faith acts. Real faith is not something that just lives up in the head alone. It is living and active. Real faith risks. Real faith relies on God in the moment of truth. As we reflect on our own lives this Christmas, can you ask yourself honestly, am I expressing my faith or just confessing it? Is my faith something that is visible to others? Do I put it into action? I've used this illustration before. It's from uh, Matt Chandler, the pastor in Dallas. He tells about uh, his wife. Uh, she really likes antiques, and she goes and buys antique chairs in these antique stores. And she'll work on the chairs and set them in their home. And Matt will say, that's a beautiful chair. I'm so glad you got that. You know, I love it. And she'll say, well, why don't you sit down in it? See how comfortable it is. And he'll say, ah. I know where that leads me. That leads me to the chiropractor, right? Uh, that chair is too frail for me to sit in. I have no interest in sitting in that. And she says, you know, if you really like the chair and if you think the chair is beautiful and helpful for our home, I don't understand why you won't just sit in it. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't think I want to sit in the chair. And he, he makes the point that real faith is, is willing to sit in the chair. You can say, I believe that chair will hold me. That chair looks sturdy and helpful. But you need to prove that by actually being willing to do it. That's what faith is. Faith is confessing something to be true and then acting upon that confession in your day-to-day life. And so the question is, are you willing to act? You know, if you don't see that in your life, then this is a great season to begin to change, to begin to trust, to begin to act. We'd love to talk to you more about that. So Rahab puts action to her confession. And then secondly, Rahab points us to the gospel. Matthew has Rahab's story in the beginning of Jesus' story because Matthew wants to show us the sort of folks that Jesus came to save. And Matthew wants to show us how those sorts of folks, folks like us, by the way, can be saved. We can be rescued and healed by Jesus from our own sin and from the judgment that will one day come by believing that he forgives sinners through the cross. If we rest on Jesus' finished work in his death and resurrection for sinners like us, if we trust in what the Savior came to do and accomplish on our behalf, then we, as it were, have a scarlet cord over our own lives, a symbol that when God comes in judgment, he will pass over us in his mercy because we're trusting that he is who he says he is and that he has done what he promised to do in Jesus. Just as he delivered his people out of Egypt, so he has delivered us through the death of Jesus out of our peril, out of our destruction, out of our deadness, out of our darkness. He is the Lamb of God. He is the light of the world. Rahab's story, in very profound ways, points us to that truth. And that's why Matthew puts her in, because he wants you and he wants me to be asking ourselves, do we believe that Jesus has rescued us? Do we see our need for rescue? That at the end of the day, we are no more worthy than someone like Rahab. And seeing our need, are we living a life that demonstrates that we have trusted 
these things are true, that God has sent his only son to shed his blood so that we might be pardoned. And he's raised him from death into victorious life so that we, through connecting with him by faith, might one day be a part of his kingdom where all things will be made new and where we individually are even now being transformed from glory unto glory. Although our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day after the image of God. Can you see that this Christmas? Can you believe that this Christmas? That's what the Spirit at this moment is calling us to. So may it be so for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and grace. We ask this morning that we would see in fresh ways how kind you have been to prodigals like us, to broken people, to people like Rahab, to people like me, to people who are desperately wicked and needy and corrupt to people who fall prey to temptation and find themselves in all sorts of vicious situations in life. God, those are the exact sorts of people that you sent Jesus to rescue out of the darkness. And so, God, we thank you that you have done that. We thank you that even in the very, very beginning verses, in telling us these obscure names that preceded Jesus' own life, we see underneath the surface, story after story of how you have always been doing this same work, God. You have always been entering in to our corruption and bringing flourishing and peace and life and joy out of it. How good you are, God. How faithful you are. How kind you have been to us. And God, we ask this Christmas that we would see these things in fresh and new ways. We ask, God, that we would know the true meaning of this season. That Jesus has come to get himself into our mess and pull us out of it by his grace. Will you teach us profoundly that truth and write it on our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.